0: Welcome back to the Jewish Reaction. My name is Rabbi Steve
1: Berg. I'm the International Director of NCSY. And I'm Rabbi Yaakov Glasser, the Director of Education for International NCSY. And today we're going to continue with some of the many discussions we've had an opportunity to have on the program in the past relating to the development of teenagers. Um, Rabbi Berg, I know that you have spent the last couple of days with an extraordinary group of youngsters. Uh, I thought maybe you could begin the program by sharing, us, sharing with us a little bit uh, some insights from your remarkable trip to Washington.
0: Well, yeah, I think anyone who's been listening to, uh, to Nahum knows that uh, his favorite person in the world uh, in the last couple of months is Rifka Abbey. Um, and Rifka Abbey is, is someone who's remarkably talented. Um, I had the great merit to meet her a couple of months ago uh, here in our offices, uh, and she became an intern for NCSY for the summer. And she put together a trip for over 100 teens to go to lobby in Washington. Uh, and on Sunday, I had the great host to uh, to talk to the teens. Uh, about lobbying i actually talked to them about two of the greatest lobbyists uh, I, jewish lobbyists i think they ever existed um the first one was uh, esther queen esther who basically um did not want to go into alasheros and and talked about the uh, the talk that mordechai gave her to get her to coax her to go inside talking about you know that perhaps this is why god has put you in this place and if you don't do it someone you know someone else will and and how she got up the courage and the other person i talked about with these teens was eddie jacobson who uh uh, people may know Eddie Jacobson was a business partner of Harry Truman, and Eddie Jacobson um, was was someone who went into Harry Truman and asked him to meet with uh, Dr. Weitzman um, about the the uh, creation of State of Israel and the recognition of State of Israel. And um, both of these, I felt, were like you know people that did not necessarily kind of start out saying I'm going to be a lobbyist, I'm going to change the world, and everything. They were people that God just kind of placed. Uh, choices to them, and they they made them. And, you know, as I spoke to the kids about that on Sunday, and they were just an incredible group. I mean, they were just um, uh, really cared about the Jewish people, and they were mostly seniors um, from around the tri-state area. Um, But I think the highlight was, you know, we went down there on Monday, and we went lobbying, went to different congressional offices and different places, um, and then we were able to arrange. And this was really in the last couple of days uh, with Jared Bernstein. Jared is the director of, of Jewish Outreach for the White House, um, a, just a fantastic person. We called him, believe it or not. You know, we were looking at the schedule. We said, "What can we do for these kids? These kids are are, are going, taking out of their own time to do this great stuff. What can we do? It'll be really amazing for them." And we called Jared late Wednesday night. And uh said, Hey, can could you get us a White House? And you know it was almost like, you know, half in Jess and half like this would be really cool. Um, and believe it or not, he's like, Okay, no problem. And uh we went we capped off our day by uh going to the White House. That, that's incredible. do you have a relationship with Sharon Burns? It was uh yeah, he's he's I think most most Jews that are active uh with the White House do. Um he's fantastic, he's a New Yorker originally, just really one of the great uh the great Jews out there. And uh he has always I mean my dealings with him, he's always found it really important for young Jews, especially high school or college, for them to get active and know, know what's going on out there and, uh, he basically, um, and I, I gotta tell you, I, I, one of the reasons that we really pushed this through was for Riff Gabby. You know, we felt so strongly that if, if, if a teenager could put together something like this and we really wanted to make it special. Um, and we went to, uh, a room, we went to a, uh, auditorium where they, uh, told us that, uh, all the Navy SEALs had gathered, gathered to watch some movie, um, something, Medal of Valor, some, some, some kind of movie that came out. So, uh, they pointed out that the person that had killed Bin Laden was in that room, although they didn't know who it was at the time, and they still don't know. But uh, so it was, a, it was an amazing place to be. And basically, um, they talked about the White House and history of the White House, and, and, and Jared talked about his his background. And he must have taken—I'm not joking, I'm not kidding—over
1: a hundred questions. There were about, probably over a hundred questions that these kids asked. We were there for two hours in the White House. Well, what were some of the issues that teenagers were thinking about in terms of the Jewish liaison to the White House?
0: It's a it's a great question. You know, he he was. Uh, there were a lot of personal questions to him, what it's like, you know, to be there and to kind of, in essence, be like the Jewish representative. I mean, he's the he's the Jewish guy there. There are lots of Jews in the White House. You know, in fact, the chief of staff, Jack Lew, is was Orthodox, um, but he is in charge of the Jewish issues. Um, and he talked about it, you know, the the real responsibility um, and the things that he's been able to do um, as, as being a part of the White House. Uh, and, you know, he talks about being in Homeland Security where, you know, he was able to free last year. I think it was something like 30,000 love, Miss Rogan. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, you know, kind of interesting vignettes like that. Uh, the kids asked a lot about him. The kids asked a lot about policy. They asked about uh, the administration and the policy in Israel. Um, and he talked a lot about that very openly, about how there, there's been a lot of uh, cooperation. Um, um, they asked about everything. We asked about tuition crisis, about how to get funding. I mean, they really, really asked everything. They're very intelligent kids, very intelligent kids. And you know what it 's so important it 's so important for young people to have these experiences um, where they can they can go and interact
1: with, with people with with role models and, and mentors I absolutely agree you know one of the things that you brought up before is the whole question of of a leader and to what extent is a leader born you know with that type of uh, capacity and that type of sort of internal inspiration and ability and to what extent can leaders be shaped and trained and have instilled within them uh, certain abilities to be able to project their ideas and transform them into, you know, actual events and experiences that could shape the world. And I think one of the things that teenagers think about a lot is to what extent is their life in their hands? They're at a point in life where they're making a lot of fundamental choices, and they're looking around at people who've made certain achievements, and they're asking themselves, you know, if I want to get there, like, what, what is between me and success? And what kind of choices do I need to make in order to achieve that success? And those are the, the start of some of the decisions they're having to make in terms of where to go to college, in terms of their own Jewish experiences. And I think when they meet an individual like Jared and they see somebody who's been able to be so open about his Jewish identity and at the same time make such an impact uh, for the Jewish community, I think it's inspirational to the teens. And they see within themselves that ability. You know, when you see these people on TV and you read about them in the newspapers they kind of seem larger than life and then when you meet them in person and you realize there's a certain humanity to them they laugh at the same jokes you do they have mannerisms they you know they they exude the same anxieties that that most normal people do i think the whole concept of being a leader just becomes more accessible uh to teens and and that's one of the reasons why i think in particular in terms of leadership experiences and and i think we'll have an opportunity to talk about a variety of different uh, models of leadership experiences for teens, but the whole prospect of exposing them to, to role models and to people who've made it and what that means and what goes into that. I'm, I'm really not surprised that they wanted to know a lot about his life because that's, for teens, that's the narrative. That's, that's, they're trying to shape their story and they want to be in control of their story and they're trying to figure out how to, you know, transition their story to a place of success. Yeah, I think it's a narrative for
0: everyone. Um, I think people, you know, it's just, you think of Moshe Rabbeinu, you think of the fact that he had a lisp, or you think of, you know, his whole argument with God, you know, saying, you know, why me, why me, why me? Um, yeah, that's that's one of it. I also think that, uh, you know, Koma has a great article. I think it's in Parsons Bollock, but uh, she talks about the difference between um, Jewish prophets versus non-Jewish prophets. And she talked about how Bilam. Uh, basically is giving all the sacrifices, saying, give me prophecy, give me prophecy, give me prophecy. But, you know, you look at so many of the Jewish prophets, you know, whether it be, you know, Yonan down and, and Moshe, et cetera, and they, none of them want prophecy. None of them want that responsibility. They kind of run away from it a little bit. And I think that the true Jewish leader, I think that one of the great um, characteristics that, that we have passed on for thousands of years has been that humility, has just uh, been that ability to say, you know, I'm a leader because I have to be a leader. You know, uh, Malcolm X needs you know like there's no one here to to do it. I I got to be that person. Um and and you know with teens, so they haven't had a chance to do it yet. And I think that's what's really amazing about it is, till now they've been kids and everyone's kind of been saying okay do this do that whole thing and oh here's the ability and the chance to do something and I
1: think they took the bull by the horns and I think they did a they did just a fantastic job with it. Yeah, and there's no question. It's just their whole culture. Uh, The whole, you know, contemporary teen culture, um, with with texting and Facebook and all these different things, uh, they want to matter. They want what's going on in their life to be relevant and important to the outside world. They want to make an impact. You almost get this sense that there's this restrained, uh, you know, ability within them that's just waiting to be awakened. And it's really remarkable when you are able to observe teens in these kinds of experiences. Uh, you know, Mary, many parents have commented to me after, you know, their teens have, have gone on, whether it's an NCSY summer program or any other type of leadership experience, that, you know, not, not everyone is like Rivka, you know, like not, not everybody, you don't see it in them right away. Uh, you don't see that charisma. You don't see that ability. But sometimes when given the opportunity, uh, you know, this remarkable capacity just uh, bursts forth. Uh, from people that you never expect it to come from, and I think uh, I think the other thing that these experiences give teens is the exposure to the notion that there are many different outlets for leadership that leadership is not only about standing up in the front of the room and taking all the questions and being the upfront person that for everyone you know Jared Bernstein, there are countless individuals who are working behind the scenes also as leaders in shaping the future of uh, the American Jewish community
0: yeah, you know I, I was even thinking just. Uh...
1: Let's, let's let's take a jump off from Jews for a second. You know,
0: there's that 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 girl in Pakistan. Uh, I think her name is Malala. That that uh, she basically blogged about um, women learning and being able to school and everything, and then the Taliban shot her. A 14 year old girl shot her in the head, and she's in England, and hopefully she'll she'll make it out. But you know that 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 kind of leadership, that kind of bravery, to be able, you know, it, 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 it's interesting because I think heroism is basically just the ability to say, hey, that's just not right. Um, and that was Moshe with Paro. You know that was was Abraham to the rest of the world. That was, you know, so you go down the list. Jewish heroes basically just
1: stand up and say, "You can't do that." Like, right. well, and what's amazing is Moshe was willing to do it both to exter- external enemies as well as internal enemies. He was willing to stand up to other Jews. Uh, when he felt that there was an injustice going on. I mean, those are really the two stories we hear about Moshe Rabbeinu in his formative years. Uh, we, we don't hear of his Torah learning. We don't hear of his, you know, incredible devotion to Shemiras and which I'm, I'm sure was a part of his his life at some point. But the two defining moments that uh, are presented in the Torah that give us the foundation of Moshe Rabbeinu is him standing up for the Jewish people against the Mitzri, and then him standing up for one Jew against another Jew. Um, and, and, and that's... That's what makes a Jewish leader. Yeah, and, and so I think you know when you talk about teens, I think that the
0: one of the reasons that we 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 um, we talk about teens so much is because uh, peer pressure is really what prevents leadership. You know, peer pressure is what prevents leadership, and uh, uh, it, it was it was very interesting. You know, Jared at one point was um, was talking about different things, and he said, "Look, you know, we Jews know that you know it doesn't just start, it doesn't just end, you know." If it's happened to someone else, it'll eventually happen to us. You know, that, that's the one lesson we've learned through the, the years and certainly in Germany and other places. And I think that's why it's so important to choose. Look, its it, it, you find Jews in all kinds of causes around the world. You really find them, whether it be building hospitals, whether it be like, you know, all kinds of causes. We're really on front. I think that's just like, you know, that's in the heart of a Jew um, to really go out there. So I thought that, that, that the job that Rivka did was fantastic. I thought that... Uh, just the whole tenor of the day, um, the fact that Jerry was so gracious. I also should mention that she University, who coordinated the trip and a lot, a large part of this uh, with us at NCSY, um, they were fantastic. They were just really great. In fact, they had had someone at the White House talk about how to become an intern. And they talked about how you can be an orthodox intern and don't worry about it and, and stuff like that. Um I guess since they have an orthodox chief of staff, they've kind of like got it down pat a little bit. Right. Although he did. He told us that uh, in the White House mess, they now serve kosher food, which is really, uh, really interesting uh, due to Jack Low. So th- that's really it. And, you know, maybe um, later when we come back, we can um, talk a little bit more about more specific programs and stuff like that to kind of get, you, you mentioned before then um, we drift off into other topics, but is a leader. Are you born a leader? or do You become a leader. And that's I, I think is a big part of it. You know. Absolutely. Okay, uh, thank you so much, uh, and we will be back soon.
2: Thank you for tuning in to another edition of Kosher Tidbits. Today we'll focus and spend a couple of minutes discussing kosher wine and kosher grape juice. Grape wine and other uh, grape derived products have a special place in halakha. The special place in halakha uh, manifests itself in, in a number of areas. Uh, one example is with the bracha that we make when consuming grape-derived products. Typically, the fruit from a tree, uh, when consuming that by itself, one makes a bari priya et, a blessing over the fruit of the tree. When you extract the juice from the fruit, you only make a shahakol. You make a more general type of a bracha, shahakol ni'ebedvaro, that we make on all general types of products. With respect to grape juice, when consuming the grapes themselves, we make a bari Priha priates. We make the bracha of the fruits of the tree, because the vine from which the grapes grow is considered a tree. Once you extract the juice from the grapes, that has a special bracha of bari Priha Gofen, a special bracha specific to the to the fruits and the juice of the of the vine. Another area, and this is the, I guess, area that makes it most sensitive with respect to the manufacture of kosher grape juice and kosher wine, is yayin Nesach. What this means is in ancient times, when there was much idol worship in the world, the concern existed that if wine or grape juice, which was used in the libations or in uh, the service of the idols, um, was used for that purpose, it would become forbidden for Jewish people and for people consuming kosher to drink from that wine, uh, because it was dedicated for for idols. Now it's true that that, that concern of idol worship is, is long in, in, in history, doesn't exist any longer. Nonetheless, those restrictions that were enacted, um, whereby only specific approved individuals could handle grape juice and wine products, those restrictions still remain to this day. And perhaps for other reasons, the um, reason um, primarily today is that um, wine is something which is enjoyed between um, individuals in a social context. And the concern existed that if we're to, we were to share with other faiths, there would be intermarriage between faiths um, by the sharing of wine. And... As you know it may sound a little bit ancient and archaic, um, but those types of restrictions have actually maintained the um, purity of, uh, of of the Jewish people and that they marry within the faith and not outside the faith so yayin nesach, like I mentioned, which is the um, wine which is used as a libation for of a for idol worship, while that's no longer an issue, we do refer to wine which is not prepared in the restricted manner by specific individuals as Stam Yenam, general wine, which cannot be consumed by um, kosher consuming people. Now, if we follow and trace the steps of making wine and making grape juice, we can look at the sensitive and uh, areas that require special restriction and special care. Harvesting of the grapes is in itself not a sensitive issue. We go out into the field, we go out into the, into the vineyard, and that's done today sometimes manually, sometimes it's done through an automated process with machinery. But typically, the grapes themselves are not pressed and juice is not extracted. As long as that hasn't taken place, there's no restriction whatsoever on the grape. And therefore, we can go into our stores and purchase grapes themselves, consume them without any special care. However... Once they arrive into the grape juice extracting facility, plant manufacturing, or into the winery, what happens is they are subjected to a pressing or an extraction process whereby juice is separated from the pulp, and from the skin, and from the seeds of the grape. And at that point, the entire entirety of the grape, whether any of the components that we just mentioned, all are restricted to being handled only by Shomer Shabbos individuals. Should they be handled by others, that grape skin, that grape pulp, that grape juice, or the seeds themselves would be invalidated for kosher use. As we continue the process, um, we take the juice. Sometimes if it's just juice that's to be sold as juice, the juice is um, either concentrated by removing water and uh, sometimes reconstituted after, or it's single-strength juice which is sold and which is packaged um, for use. Um, if wine is to be made, that wine enters into special fermentation tanks, and what happens naturally when subject to the right temperatures is that the sugar which is found within the grape juice converts because of enzymes which are found within the grape skin. They convert into... Wine. It converts into alcohol, which makes the final product a wine product. That's why a sweet grape juice ends up into a typically into a dry wine, unless, of course, you add either sugar or grape juice concentrate to sweeten the wine. Or if you stop the fermentation process early so that not all of the sugar has converted, and then you have what's called a residual sugar from the grape themselves. After you've fermented the wine, and that can take um, from a week or two up to three, four weeks, what happens is you, t- you take that wine, and you can either, in the case of uh, better wines, age in, in either barrels, um, wooden barrels, or in uh, stainless steel tanks. They can be aged for many months, or they can be bottled um, after a short period, Um and uh, the filtration happens to remove any sediment and any other um, extras that exist there. In um, the filtration, uh, we have to be concerned that, uh, of course, no additives are used that could compromise the kosher status. And usually with grape juice and wine, we're concerned not just with the general kosher status, but also the Pesach status. The wines and grape juice are typically kosher for Passover also. And finally, the process um, of the bottling, whereby the tanked, uh, juice is put into bottles and sealed. Now, all of the steps and all of the manipulation of the product, whether it's adding yeast to the product, whether it's um, removing um, uh, what they call pump-overs to have the juice flow and, and be mixed over and over, um, all of those steps have to be handled by shamashabas Shabbos um, special approved workers. Um, at the completion of the process, um, once it's in the bottle and it's sealed, then it can be handled by anybody, but from the point of extraction of juice through the, f- the final packaging, typically it's handled only by those special approved workers. Now, there is one exception to this, and that is when the juice has been cooked up uh, to high temperatures. Um, typically, the OU uh, requires 175 degrees Fahrenheit, um, to be considered mevushal, to be considered that the wine or the juice has been cooked. And the restrictions of Stam um, Yenam or Yai that we mentioned before were never applied to a cooked product. And the reason for this is that um, while juice and wine were used um, in sacrifice, they were not used if they had been cooked. It was considered an inferior product. Today, with slash pasteurization, it's possible to cook up the wine with very little loss of, of quality um, to the wine. Although, many of the better wines, um, the more expensive type of wines, um, sometimes avoid the mavoshal process because wine connoisseurs seem to be able to detect the difference between um, wine which has been subject to um, pasteurization and other wine which has not been subject to it. Um, with respect to the, the bottle, um, there's a difference between wine which is mavoshal, between wine which has been cooked and that which is not. With wine that has been cooked, there's only a requirement for one simon or one sign on the bottle. So an OU symbol or a kosher symbol on the label or on the capsule is sufficient to identify the product as being kosher. However, if you're dealing with a, a wine which is not mavoshal, which has not been cooked or pasteurized, it's necessary to have two simonim. So typically you'll see an OU symbol or you'll see another kosher symbol on the label, as well as the capsule or the cork, um, which is required in order to ensure the integrity of that kosher wine. Um, other products that are derived from grapes include... Things like grape skin extract. Um, these are, um, sometimes colors that are extracted from the grape skin. Um, red colors and, and uh, that are derived from it. Um, also, um, certain nutritional, um, additives, um, are also derived from the grape skin. Uh, those typically have the same restrictions because, um, once the grape has been pressed, and that's what happens when you want to separate the, um, the juices, and other components from the grape skin, that grape skin is restricted just as the grape juice is restricted. So um, typically those products have to be made under the similar conditions as grape juice and wine. There is also another derivative of grape, which is from the grape's seeds. Now, grape seeds, um, the derivatives of the grape seeds can be extracted early on, shortly after the grape has been pressed and the juice and pulp and skin have been removed, um, in those cases, the restrictions do remain in effect, um, as with the other components of the grape. With respect, however, to dried grape seeds, those that have been left to dry for 12 months or that have a similar moisture level to that which has been left for 12 months to dry, um, the restrictions are removed. And we say that that's not considered any longer like a grape product and those can be used without any restriction. Some of the things that can be derived from the dried Grape seeds would be things like grape seed oil, um, which usually is, is a simple type of a product. Um, and even if grapes, um, seeds have been derived to have been taken from, um, non-kosher pressing, um, nonetheless, there's no restriction on the grape seeds once they're dried. And the same is true for other grape seed extracts. As long as they're, um, extracted from the seed after the drying process, there's no longer restriction and those can be used freely. In Israel, there are additional restrictions which are not specific to grapes, and those are all of the laws that apply to agriculture. And, for example, um, we're interested in the grapes that are coming into the winery um, as we're not so concerned um, in Chutzlauer and outside of the State of Israel. And those restrictions include things like trumos and maizras, the tiths, um, that have to be separated um, from those grapes, um, there are other restrictions, such as Shemitah, the seventh sabbatical year. Um, the OU does not certify product um, that is from the sabbatical year um, from, from uh, Jewish agriculture in Israel. Um, there are methods by which it can be consumed, um, such as Otzer Bezden, which is whereby it's not used for private use, but rather it's, it's uh, um, handled and, rest- and, uh, and entirely by a, by a public body. Um, there are methods to utilize the grapes of Shemitah, um, but since the OU is primarily certifying Israeli products for export, and there are restri- other restrictions that apply to that so as not to confuse the um, chutzlards, the diaspora um, consumers, we avoid certifying those types of products. Um, there's another um, issue that has come up, um, and that is Arla. Um, the vine, um, grape vines are specifically restricted from having other side crops Um, intermingled with the vines and while in better grapes uh, it's almost uh, never heard of that they would plant other crops interspersed with the the vineyard because that could be to the detriment of the grapes. Nonetheless, with respect to uh, um, some of the downgrade grapes that does happen and there are, for example, in in certain Arab vineyards um, situations where this has occurred um, because we have um, special supervision at the um, agriculture level in Israel. Um, they're careful to um, avoid these types of issues. So the same way they're uh, monitoring the Truma, the meiser, and the Shemitah issues, they're also monitoring this issue of Arla. This is just to give a, a general overview of um, how grape is processed, the special restrictions that only Shomer Shabbos people can handle them, um, Bear in mind that uh, the grape season is typically late August um, into October in the northern hemisphere. In the southern hemisphere, which is the exact opposite of here, um, it typically falls out in late February into March and April. Um, which in, in both circumstances fall out um, at the same time as, as Jewish holidays which presents special challenges um, grape crush is a, is a hectic time and it's necessary to have the necessary staffing in place um, with Yontif that's not always that easy to do um, but many people are involved in this process and typically it's teams of, of mashkichim, teams of, of special kosher workers who are involved in processing wine and grape juice and the OU certifies such products all over the world, literally, um, and, and all the major continents and, and in all the major grape-growing areas of the world. So whether it's in California or Virginia in the United States or whether it's in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, the OU is, is certifying and special kosher workers are involved in this process all over the world.
1: Hi, welcome back. I am Rabbi Yaakov Glasser, the Educational Director of International NCSY, and I'm here together with a remarkable individual from the Orthodox Union, Rabbi Jack Abramowitz. Rabbi Abramowitz is the Torah content editor of the OU, responsible for so much of the substantive Torah Shi'urim and programs that you see throughout the online world that are being put together by the OU. Uh, Rabbi Abramowitz generally plays a role on this program in interviewing others who are out there in the world of online Torah, making an impact on the Jewish people. Uh, today, we wanted to take the opportunity to speak to Rabbi Abramowitz himself about what's going on here at the Orthodox Union uh, in terms of Torah development uh, through our incredible medium of our website. Rabbi Abramowitz, welcome.
3: Thank you, Rabbi Glasser.
1: And uh, perhaps you could share with us what what is new on the OU Torah World?
3: Well, we are always adding new series. We're trying to get a lot of different things, both for uh, people who are new to learning and for people who are seasoned with many years in, in yeshiva. So we're always trying to get new topics. We're trying to get new approaches to existing topics. And uh, just to tell you some of the things that we've started now for 5773, we just started releasing a lot of new series. Uh, I think the, uh, well, they're, they're all very exciting. But, uh, one, that uh, hits very close to home for me is we have a uh, shir on Chavos Halavavos, the uh, famous uh, Musar work, and that's being delivered by Rabbi Avram Chaim Foyer, who is a renowned uh, pulpit rabbi, and speaker and writer, author. Uh, so he's, he's made Aliyah a couple of years already, and he uh, speaks in our Israel Center in uh, Jerusalem. And uh, so we've, we've got his Chovah Shiorim, as well as some other content from Rabbi Foyer that hopefully we'll be presenting around holidays and other times when it's appropriate. Um, Rabbi Weil, the Executive Vice President of the Orthodox Union, he's uh, also a very renowned speaker. He's giving a, a sheer on uh, understanding tefillah. Uh, we actually teased a couple of these over the course of the summer as a preview, and hopefully there will be many more of those. And he's spoken on uh, Musaf for the Yomim Narayim. And uh, what what is the haftorah and other things, and it's very insightful. Teaches people a lot. When it comes to davening, we take things for granted. We don't always understand why we're doing what we're doing. What is the significance of this? Why did the rabbis institute things to to be this way? And uh, look behind the curtain from Rabbi Well is also very, uh, very enlightening. Rabbi Svi uh from Yeshiva University will be presenting his Shav Shmais Sugi'os. Uh, surprisingly, this is actually the second series we've had on Shav Uh It's uh, kind of an esoteric uh, topic, perhaps, but uh, he's delivered an incredible and, and very easy to understand. I mean, assuming someone has, I guess, an appropriate level of background, but uh, just the clarity of, of his uh, of his content is astounding. Uh, on Parsha, we have we have many Parsha Shirim, uh, and I and I actually try not to add too many new Parsha because there's just so many. How many Parsha Shirim can a person hear in a week? But we just started Rev Hirsch on uh, Parsha, and this is being presented by Michael Gutman. He's uh, actually a descendant of Rev Hirsch, and uh, he gives a Daf Shir and a Parsha Shir up in Washington Heights, and he's got a lot of insights into uh, Rev Hirsch's uh, commentary on the weekly Sedra. And uh, let me think. Uh, one more I can think of is. Uh, Rabbi Ben Sion Tversky from Milwaukee. Uh, he's a descendant of Balatanya. He's had a uh, Tanya uh, Shear running on the OU Kosher section of OU Radio for a while, and we're actually migrating those. We're going to be presenting them as a new series on OU uh, Torah. So we've. Got just so a you whole- have
1: you have Chasidus, Machshava, Lomdus, Tefillah, Parsha. I mean, this is just an remarkable spectrum of uh, of content. Do you have any idea, like, if, if people wanted to know, what are the most popular, what are the most popular, shoot-room? what are the most people tuning in to OU
3: Radio to hear? Well, I, I think the basics are are always going to be the most popular. While well, we try to have something for everyone and a broad variety of, uh, of content, uh, the basics, the Dafyomi, the Nachyomi, the uh, things like that are always going to have the the greatest draw. Rabbi Weinreb's Parsha column is extremely popular. Rabbi Rosner's Parsha Shear, extremely popular. Uh, but I think the Daf and the Nach and uh, my, my emails, uh, the Haryag uh, daily email and the Hashanah Halachas daily email, uh, those have thousands of subscribers each. So I, I think that the uh, the basics will always prove to have the largest audiences but a lot of people are ready for the next level. Any idea what
1: our DAF reach is here at the OU? Like how many people were – I've heard that we're we're among the, the largest DAF Yomi shiurim in the world. That's the I'd, that's
3: I'd the have the to reputation. check the numbers because we launched the new org site, and I'm sure they've only gone up. But mm-hmm. our, our reputation for being the broadest-reaching DAF, if anything, has only grown uh, since we added the org URL – then uh, we we expanded. It. It's not just Rabbi Elephant's Sheer, but we have Rabbi Rosner's daily daf. We have the Beis Havat Halacha Center. Uh, Rabbi Weinreb is uh, writing a column on on uh, personal issues that come up in the in the uh, daf over the course of, of time, and a uh, lot of lot of other content and uh, resources to help people with the daf. So it's it's a, it's a whole section into itself now. You can get there through OU Torah, but it's really its own subsection.
1: How would you distinguish the OU Torah experience from other online Torah experiences? Like, what what is someone looking for when they say to themselves, I'm going to tune in here as opposed to anywhere
3: else? Well, I don't think we're trying to be one thing. I think we're trying to service the Jewish community. And I think they know that when they go to OU Torah, they're going to get a grounded approach and they can rely on the content that they find there. And so we want to make it accessible for lay people, but we also want to make it accessible for for scholars and rabbis, and they should be able to find resources. And I can tell you from the feedback I get, uh, we are reaching both those audiences. And I, I think that it's quick before people are able to figure out which are the appropriate programs for them based on their own backgrounds and interests, et cetera. So uh, all I can say is the OE's reputation for being the largest Jewish resource or everything should also include Torah, and uh, people are able to find here. So, are there going to be sites that specialize in in particular areas? Yes, and they may even excel in those things. But we're we're really combining, like I said, Parsha, Daf, Nach, Achshava, as you mentioned, other other areas of Jewish learning, trying to give people uh, yeshiva in a can, as it were.
1: You know, I want to end by just uh, I don't know if you know this, already, what's I may never have shared this with you, but you should know. Uh, I had a young man in my shul, in the rabbi of a shul in Pisaic. Um I'll tell you his name even. His name is Yehuda Goldberg. Yehuda Goldberg made a siyum on Tanakh um, for his bar mitzvah. And Yehuda Goldberg studied Tanakh entirely together with the OU Nach Yomi program. He followed every single shir. And when it was time for his bar mitzvah and to make the siyum, uh, many of the Magide shir who he had been in touch with to ask questions and to, for clarification. Had, he had he had email correspondence with, um, you know, either sent well wishes or you know some of them even attended the the bar mitzvah and the seum. Uh, so you know, I could just tell you that uh, that one little one little example of uh, even someone young uh, who was reached in such a profound way and was able to achieve such a substantial milestone in terms of his progress in Talmud Torah. Uh, all due to your work.
3: Well, I can't take full credit. Uh, I, I don't necessarily uh, do it all alone. You know, there are many talented Magidei Shear. I mean, you've you've given some lectures for our Mishnah Yomis program, and uh, many other rabbis and speakers and authors who have contributed. So it's it's great. It's very gratifying to be able to facilitate such things, and I do hear such stories, and it, it really just you know makes my my day you know, to to know that that the things we're doing here are reaching the people and having that kind of an impact.
1: Great. Thank you, Rabbi Abramowitz. It was a pleasure to speak with you, and we look forward to having you be in the interviewer's seat uh, for next week.
2: Wine has been referred to as poetry in a bottle. It is an acquired taste. The more we know about wine, the better we can appreciate it. The more that we know about kosher wine, perhaps the better that we can appreciate it as well. This edition of Kosher Tidbits is dedicated to a brief overview of the manufacturing process of kosher wine. To be sure, wine and grape juice play a very special role in Jewish tradition and law. It is with wine that we both usher in and bid farewell to Shabbos and Jewish holidays. Jewish marriages in Brisson are celebrated with blessings recited over a glass of wine. Because of the unique status, wine and grape juice have been granted their own special bracha, Bore Prihagafen. The availability of kosher wine today is unprecedented. The OU presently certifies kosher wine produced in six continents. Wine and grape juice are produced on both coasts of the United States. Some of France, Italy, Spain, Hungary, and Portugal's world-famous wineries also produce kosher varieties. South of the equator, Argentina, Australia, Chile, South Africa, and most recently, New Zealand, are today all producing kosher wine. Even the former Soviet Republic of Georgia has recently produced a kosher wine. As one might imagine, Israeli wines are being recognized as some of the finest kosher wines available today. Wine, because of its uniqueness, is in some respects the most sensitive of kosher foods. The restrictions placed on the product originally stem from its sacramental application in the practice of Avodah zarah, ancient pagan idol worship. Although that limited concern is largely irrelevant today, the Talmud, recognizing the potential social intimacy that can be cultivated through the sharing of wine, placed strict restrictions on the wine that we consume. Chazal contended, drinking partners can become marriage partners. History, it seems, has frequently corroborated the rabbi's observation. Other than processing aids and preservatives, wine contains nothing more than juice extracted from the grape. Effectively, the difference between kosher and non-kosher grape juice or wine is determined solely by who has handled them. In practical terms, from the time the juice is extracted from the grapes, all handling of the product must be done exclusively by Shabbos observant juice. What this means is that prior to and during the grape pressing, not one but a team of mashkichen must be present at the location. Unlike the typical hashgacha, The Mashkichim is not there just to supervise what others are producing. Here the Mashkichim replace the winery workers in most functions and all those related to the processing of the product. The number of Mashkichim required relates directly to the specific needs of the winery. Important factors are the size of the facility and the level of automation there. Other than the Israeli wines and a select few American wineries, kosher wine is not made in kosher dedicated facilities. Instead, Wineries that produce non-kosher wine run special campaigns of kosher product under special supervision. The most critical period of the winemaking process is what is referred to as the grape crush. This takes place in the fall, usually September and October in the Northern Hemisphere, or March and April in Southern Hemisphere countries. September and October present a whole host of scheduling challenges working around the Yomim Narayim and Sukkot's. When the grapes are ripe and ready for harvest, they will not wait a few weeks for the Jewish holidays to end. Some wineries have even hosted minyanim for Rosh Hashanah services and have had sukos erected on their premises. Before beginning the actual manufacture, a significant amount of preparation is required. Grape presses and tanks must undergo special koshering procedures. A great deal of water and heating utilities are needed, resources that are not always readily available in winery locations. Conveyors, hoses, and pumps must be fully cleaned before kosher production can commence. Grapes are harvested and brought, usually by truck, to the winery. The equipment that dumps the grapes into screen bins and destemmers is operated exclusively by the mashkichem this is necessary because the process results in the extraction of a small amount of juice from the grapes. All subsequent processes are fully performed and controlled by the mashgichim until the grape must is safely stored in the fermentation tanks, where it will reside for a few weeks. Whenever mashgichim are not close at hand and in full control, the tanks are completely sealed by the mashgichim. This often requires multiple seals at many levels of the multiple-story tanks. By no means is the mashgih's job now complete. Although grapes have naturally occurring yeast to affect fermentation of the juice's sugar into alcohol, today many winemakers add special strains of yeast to affect a consistent, high-quality product. For kosher wine, this yeast must derive from a kosher source. Also, to ensure the success of the fermentation, circulation of the product, periodic tasting, and other adjustments are typically made. Each time the tank seals are opened or any manipulation takes place, this must be done by the mashkiach. As has happened, a mere misstep by a regular winery worker breaking a seal or turning a valve can render a 50,000-liter tank of kosher wine as non-kosher. Following the fermentation of the juice into wine, the wine is transferred into tanks to be stored for a period of weeks before being bottled. Reserve wines can be stored for a year or more, sometimes in oak barrels. For kosher wine, those barrels are either new or ones that are maintained for exclusive kosher use. Some wineries maintain their own bottling equipment. Others ship tankers of wine to a bottling facility. Similar to all the previous processes, each step is performed by the mashkirim. Some sweet wines have sugar added. Naturally, sweetened wines have grape juice concentrate added. Naturally, the concentrate must also be kosher. Because the restrictions on kosher wine are relaxed if the product is cooked, many wines undergo a flash pasteurization prior to bottling. This process has been perfected so that any effective flavor is negligible. Bottles are labeled with the mashkir-controlled labels, corks, and capsules, which indicate the kosher status of the product. It becomes readily apparent that the bottle of wine that graces our Shabbos or holiday tables has required an enormous investment of time and effort before it can rightfully be declared kosher. Similarly, if we notice wine or grape juice on the ingredient statement of a product bearing the OU, we realize that a mashgiach did not just supervise the manufacture of the grape product, rather a group of dedicated mashgichim executed the critical tasks of its manufacture.
0: Hi, welcome back to the
1: uh, Jewish Reaction with Rabbi Steve Berg and Rabbi Yaakov Glasser. And we're here discussing the concept of leadership and fundamentally whether or not leadership is something that someone's born with or whether it's something that could be developed, in particular relating to our teens. And a little while earlier, we were discussing the trip to Washington and the various political advocacy leadership programs that are available. Uh, but there are so many other different types of leadership opportunities that are open to our kids. Uh, recently, our region, the New Jersey NCSY region, ran a trip for our group called LEAD, uh, where we take a group of about 12 NCSYers, some from yeshiva, some from public school, uh, from a variety of grades and different family backgrounds. And together as a team, they travel to an area of the country and uh, work with an organization called Habitat for Humanity, or Nechama, which is a, a Jewish organization that works in, in rescue and relief. And they will go into a community, they will build homes for underprivileged people, they will run programs in small communities for uh, local schools and uh, have the opportunity to really see what it's like uh, to build and to maintain uh, the dynamics of a small Jewish community. And what, what these programs do is they afford teens an opportunity to make a difference, to wake up in the morning and not just be another one of the members of the population of the teens of a particular vibrant Jewish community, but to really go somewhere and step up and be needed and be necessary and do something and make an impact. And what we find is an amazing thing. We find that students who themselves already have a predilection towards leadership will find that. They can develop their skills and develop their abilities. And students who may have never even seen that in themselves to begin with, uh, you know, all of a sudden awaken this, uh, you know, internal desire to really make a difference. And it's really an amazing thing. It's really an, an incredible, incredible experience.
0: I'm fascinated by the fact that you're, uh, you're doing this with smaller um Places like in, like Albany. You mentioned was it Buffalo or Albany or one of those yeah. Upstate? This
1: this time we went to Buffalo. We've been to uh, Galveston, Texas. We've been to Rochester, Minnesota. And, but th- but this time specifically, it's more about the Jewish community, correct? Right? As opposed to before, where you were doing a lot of reconstruction of people's homes and stuff, correct?
0: Do, do you find that in smaller communities that um, I know it's interesting? You know, I, I grew up in New York, but I spent a lot of my career outside of New York. Um, do you find that there is a uh, tremendous desire for them to be visited and be strengthened by Jews from from New York and New Jersey?
1: Without question. Uh, the people in these communities, when the kids come in, uh, you know, they have a certain, I, you know, first of all, they're, they're absolutely amazed at the level of their education, at the level of their engagement, um, at, the, at the development of these kids. There are so many things that we take for granted uh, by our kids being in Jewish communities that are just saturated with opportunity and institutions and programs and all sorts of different types of things. And when kids come into one of these communities and are able to bring that vibrancy with them and have it come alive. It's uh, it's it's a remarkable thing. And the dynamic that begins to get created between these two populations are really incredible. We'll often run programs with kids from Buffalo and kids from Teaneck. And you'd think these kids would not get along. I mean, growing up in upstate New York and growing up in northern New Jersey from a Jewish perspective is just so fundamentally different. But Almost immediately, the commonality of language in terms of the teenage universe. Uh, yeah, but it's also you know, it like, what about hold? the adults? Because I mean, I, I found also the adults in, in smaller towns and stuff. You know, when people come in, first of all, they're so hospitable, they're so nice, and, and but you know, there's a certain amount of chizik that's involved in that. Absolutely. They, you know, they walk into a community that is sort of having Shabbos after Shabbos, some of them, and not necessarily Buffalo, but these different communities, some of them have trouble getting minyanim. Um, and all of a sudden, you have this group that's loud, and they're boisterous, and they're, and they're, they're singing, and they're dancing, and they have ruach. Um, it, it makes an unbelievable impression on the community. And, and look, we, we keep getting invited back to all these communities, and we've gotten phone calls from from communities. You know, will you come spend Shabbos with us there? And it's such a win-win because what it contributes to those communities is incredible, and what the teens who are involved in doing this gain in terms of their own development, and you know, also seeing that there's a world uh, beyond New York. I mean, like you were saying, that you, you grew up in, in New York. I think mean, you grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, how many people from Brooklyn make their way to uh, all of the cities around the world that you've had a chance to visit and really get a sense of the the gamut of Klal Yisrael?
0: Well, I got to tell you, so when I was uh, when I was getting ready to leave New York, I actually had a job offer in Atlanta, and I'm, I'm, I guess I'm not embarrassed anymore, but I was embarrassed at the time to say that uh, actually I take out a map and look for Atlanta. You know, <laughs> that so many of us in New York and New Jersey area we just don't make it out so much, and uh, there is really a whole country out there, and there are a lot of Jews out there, and and, and you know one of the great I would say thrills. That I've had throughout my career is traveling around the globe, not just uh, in North America, but it's really all kinds of places and meeting Jews. And, you know, you, you walk into that shul, you know, I've been, to, I can walk into a shul in Argentina, I can walk into a shul in Germany, I can walk into um, a shul in Australia, anywhere. And I just, I know how to daven, you know, you, you go in and you click and you know, okay, maybe it's Svar and Svar, Ashkenaz, yeah, drop here, drop there. You know Shema, you know Shmanas, right? And you know that you're brothers and sisters, you know? And that's, I think, a lot of
1: what what a lot of this is about is connecting with our brothers and sisters. And it it gives teens a real sense of community and community beyond just uh the people in their school and the people in their block and the people in their shul, but the the broader existence of the Jewish community and the challenges that they face. And you know, many have, you know, commented that these small Jewish communities, many of which are are struggling uh, you know, to to expand themselves, are sort of like a hidden uh opportunity uh for many young people who are struggling to be able to afford housing in some of the more major Jewish communities, and the opportunity to really move into an area and not only uh, be in a place where you can afford a, a nice home and afford a, a lifestyle there, but also make a difference and, and be part of something that's necessary. You know, last night I davened in a shul in that metropolitan New York area that, you know, when I went online to look what time Mariv was, there were like, you know, seven Marivs, you know, and, and you walk in and you're just another guy and another Mariv and another shul. And while it's it's remarkable and it's, it's, it's phenomenal and it's, it's certainly vibrant, uh, you know, there's a very far cry from being in a community where if you're not at the Mariv, there is no Mariv. Right. And that sense right. of, uh, of 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 positive pressure, yeah. of mattering is uh, is just, it's remarkable. And, and I would mention also, I don't think it's just
0: America. You know, when I was in Israel, there was a program back then. It was called Ahi. I don't know if it exists anymore. There are other programs similar to it. Um, but I remember uh, being in Israel, being in yeshiva, and we went to Beit Shan. Uh, we went to one of these off-the-beaten-path you know, type cities. And we spent some time there and working with kids and doing stuff and and. You know, OU's got a lot of programs, a lot of these towns and, and that's it's it's really great. You know, I know kid guys and girls go go to yeshiva and, and they do wonderful things there, but you know, a, a couple of weekends to be able to go into, you know, Israel proper and kind of, you know, schmooze and talk to the folks there, whether it be um some of the Russians, Ethiopians or, or other populations, um, there's just there's just something about getting out and meeting the Jews. And um I, I don't know what it is. I just find so many people they just They got the routine down, you know, and it's so interesting to be able to break it up and meet people.
1: It's 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 really a remarkable paradox that as as the Jewish community gets stronger in these concentrated areas, in certain ways we get more insular and and we forget about uh, about what's out there and giving especially youth who are growing up in a generation where. They're looking for opportunities to matter. You know, a a lot of you know. I I talk to teens often, and and I think some of the college students that we work with also, as advisors, feel this way too. And they're growing up in a generation. They're developing in 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 a generation where a lot of the work of sort of establishing the Jewish infrastructure of the community in the United States is is done. And you know. Communities have schools and communities have shuls, and communities have mikvos and communities have restaurants and communities have eruvim. And, you know, whereas the generation of our, of our parents and grandparents, you know, had the opportunity to, to build those things, you know, it, it almost feels like it falls upon us to just sort of like expand them and maintain them. And it doesn't have the same level of, Excitement and enthusiasm. So the opportunity to create chances for people to make a difference in the larger Jewish world, uh, is just, is just, uh, incredible. You know, in the Jolt Summer Program, you know, where they'll travel to Europe and run camps for kids. And people have asked me, like, why don't you just set up the same program here in America? You know, there are plenty of, of impoverished families in the New York area. You could set up a camp for them. Why do you have to travel to Germany? And, and and I always explain to them that, you know, what What that does for a young person, that, that life transformative experience, to see what it means to struggle for uh, for meaning and purpose and identity in such a different environment, it just – it totally transforms their whole perspective. Yeah, I remember years ago when we used to run uh,
0: Jolt in Kharkov, you know, the kids would come back and, you know, kids just didn't have food and there was like – they um, very moving to, to be able to see that, you know, so whether it be either physically not to have food or physically not to have spiritual food or physical food um, for our, I believe, our children. When I say our children, I really even us as well, um, just that ability to see communities like that, it's, it's, uh, it makes you think, you know, it really makes you think. It makes you, first of all, it certainly makes your, your tefillah, your prayer a lot better because, you know, you're so thankful to God for things that you do have. But uh, it makes you think about, you know, what you want to do in the world and how you want to help people. Okay, good. So uh, thank you so much for being with us here today, and uh, we wish everyone
1: a great day. Have a wonderful day.